All right, good to see everybody again. This first Sunday in 2024, I trust everyone's new year is off to a good start, that we're all alive in Christ, that our outlook in 2024 is radiant with hope. I'm not seeing that in your faces this morning. So I'm hoping that maybe um, the focus isn't necessarily because of our circumstances, but rather it's because we know in 2024 we're going to grow in our relationship with the Lord, and that's what should excite us in this coming year. Okay, so here we are. We've come to the sixth and final chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, we're going to wrap this whole letter up before Easter, and that'll be two years that we've spent in this letter. And some of you are like, this is crazy, right? But there's a lot of stuff in here that we've had to unpack. And since it's been a while that we've talked about Ephesians, I thought I'd just spend a minute or two to just remind us of how we got here. And as we learn, Paul essentially wrote this letter for one reason, and that is so that when we're born again into a new life in Christ, we will know how it is that we're supposed to live a spirit-filled life. That is his purpose when he wrote this. And that involves understanding what it is that we believe and also how it is that we are to behave in light of what we believe. Because as we've learned, belief and behavior, they're intrinsically linked. You cannot separate them. In fact, people profess all sorts of things about what it is they believe, especially with regard to faith. But if you really, truly want to know what they believe, just look at their behavior. It will tell you absolutely everything. And that's why Paul spent the first half of this letter, chapters 1 through 3, laying out for us all it is that we're to believe as Christians. And one of those beliefs, one of those key doctrines of our faith, was God's master plan, which he set in place before the foundation of the world, and that is to unite all things in Christ. And how does he do that? He does that through his church. And that, of course, is why he spent the first half of the second part of this letter talking to us about what it is that the church believes and how it is that the church is to behave. And that's because each and every one of us were uniquely designed to play our role in the church. And so he calls us to do that in our everyday, ordinary life. And that's why we have these pillars. We didn't just come up with them as a new program. The pillars are there because we find them in Scripture and because that is exactly what Paul calls us to do so that we can live out our calling as members of his church. And then for the second half of the remainder of that letter, he focuses in on us as individuals, how it is that as individuals, that our belief and our behavior can come together. And Paul does this by going into great details. He actually wears us out with his details because he goes further and further, deeper and deeper into the specifics. And he does that so that we can apply the truth to our life because he desires for us to have consistent living. By consistent living, we mean our behavior is consistent with our belief. So that is Ephesians in a nutshell, if you want kind of a thumbnail sketch. So now I want to turn to the immediate context for our text that we're going to study today. Recall at the very beginning of chapter 5, Paul exhorted us that we're to imitate God by walking in love. And as we've learned, that is our highest calling. So it is not something that we can do on our own. It requires help. And that's why Paul teaches that we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was his charge to us. And it was very clear that's not something that we can do ourselves. It's something that unfolds, what we've called the middle voice. 
where God is moving on us. And rather than ignoring him, we actually respond to his movement and we go hand in hand with his Holy Spirit and we progress in holiness. But here's the thing. This Holy Spirit discussion can be really challenging for us. Many churches don't talk about it, or if they do, they kind of have their own little turn to it. But Paul has made it very clear what the Holy Spirit is all about, and especially how we're to relate to him. And so we've used this term opportunity cost. Basically, it means this. There's only so many hours in a day, and you can essentially choose to interact with the Holy Spirit in one of three ways. The first way is that you can choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's how you live a Spirit-filled life. The second way is that we can choose to grieve Him by living in unrepentant sin. And then the third way is we can choose to quench Him by rejecting His counsel, by ignoring the study of Scripture in our lives. Both numbers 2 and 3 up there, they lead to a distance of sorts because we don't bear His fruit in our lives. And unfortunately, far too often, most of our Christian lives are spent grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. And it explains why so many of us get frustrated why we're not growing in holiness. Because we simply can't grow in Christ without being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that's why Paul goes on to give us three very specific examples, these are the details, of how it is that we can be filled with the Spirit. By praising, giving thanks, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I hope we've all been putting these into practice in our lives, and that we're resolved to do this in 2024, to live that Spirit-filled life. Because when we do, it's absolutely life-changing as we progress in holiness, growing in our relationship with Jesus. And if you happen to miss some of this teaching on the Holy Spirit, strongly encourage you, go back to our website, check out those old sermons, You can also check them out on our YouTube site. You should all subscribe to that when you get a chance, by the way. And also on Spotify. Very easy to just hit Spotify when you're in your car, and you can listen to these sermons again. But if you're especially interested in this doctrine of the Holy Spirit, strongly encourage you to check out the September 24th sermon. It's called Life in the Spirit. Okay, three ways for us to be filled. And even though we don't do it enough, praising God and giving thanks are pretty straightforward. I think we know what that is. But this last one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, it requires a little bit more careful consideration because it's all about relationships. And as we know, relationships are challenging. And that's why Paul goes into very specific detail. He gives us three more relationships that comprise a large share of our lives. We devoted most of the fall to the first one, between wives and husbands, where we learned how it is that we can have a spirit-filled marriage in our lives. And then today move on to the second one, children and parents. How it is that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit as we live out and we're obedient to God's design for families. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, as we said, all all relationships, they provide their share of challenges. We saw that when we looked at this marriage thing in the fall. And when you think about the relationship, though, between children and their parents, it's every bit as complicated, if not even more, especially when you consider 
that unlike marriage, you don't get to choose your parents. And your parents, they don't get to choose the children. And yet the family to which we're assigned has a profound and lasting impact on the totality of our lives. It determines our socioeconomic status, our priorities, our hobbies, our passions. Every bit of that is shaped by the family to which we're assigned. And not only that, there's just something about a blood relationship that's totally different than any other relationship out there. Even though our family members can drive us crazy sometimes, they're so frustrating, but there's just something really, really special about them. They matter to us for some particular reason. Now, I come to this topic in my early 50s as one who is the child of my parents who are still living. And even though I don't live under the roof any longer, Paul's teaching still applies to me until the day that they pass. But I also come to this as one who is the earthly father of a son, a daughter, and now a son-in-law. So this teaching also applies to me as a parent, and that will be the case until I pass. So as I've considered the teaching as both a child and as a parent, I have a much better appreciation for the complexity of all that Paul is getting into here. This is going to be something that challenges us over these next two weeks. No doubt the relationship that each of us have had with our parents and the relationship that we have with our children, if the Lord has blessed us with children, it's to shape the totality of our lives far more than we could probably ever have imagined, for better or for worse. And I know some in here have gone through some pretty nasty stuff with regard to these particular relationships. There's neglect, abandonment, abuse, estrangement, narcissism, addiction, rebellion. Go on and on. So many challenges in this particular relationship. So there will be many different reactions to this teaching depending on our particular family dynamics. Because no doubt, some of these wounds, they can cut really deep. Especially when they perpetuate across generations within families. But at the end of the day, we're going to find that the damage that we've all experienced at some level or another essentially boils down to a failure to heed Paul's teaching here. So today, we're going to see what he has to say to children, and then next week, we'll look at the parents. Paul starts out, children, obey your parents. Now, just as we saw with marriage, and we'll see it again when we look at servants and masters in a couple weeks, Paul breaks with the convention of the day, he doesn't start with the head in the relationship. Rather, he first addresses the subordinate position, in this case, children. And as we learned, when Paul started with wives, he did this deliberately to highlight a few things that are important for us to see. First, the type of submission Paul has in mind here is not one that's forced. It's volitional, meaning the person voluntarily submits to or obeys the one placed in authority over him or her. And as we all know, there's a significant difference between a forced relationship and a voluntary relationship. There's a completely different attitude, a completely different atmosphere around those two types of relationships. Second, the choice to obey precedes any language about how the one in authority is supposed to behave. For example, Paul taught that wives submit regardless of how they feel about their husbands. It was not submit if you happen to like your husband, or submit if your husband happens to be nice to you. It was just, wives, submit to your husbands. And we see the exact same thing here. 
It's just children, obey your parents. Not obey them if you like them. Don't obey them if they're being nice to you this day. Children are to voluntarily obey their parents, regardless of how they feel about them. Now before we go any further, I want to make sure that we know what Paul means here by this word obey, because it's actually the most important word we're going to focus on today. In the original language, it means to humbly respect, submit to, or to honor authority. So this is a directive. Children are to humbly respect their parents, they're to submit to them, and children are to honor their parents' authority. In other words, children do what their parents tell them to do in word, in action, and in spirit. Because remember, this is volitional. Children don't obey because they're forced. They do so willingly with a good attitude. But here's the thing, and here's where the rub is, is this is not our natural bent. Our sinful desires, they bristle against the idea that somehow we have to submit ourselves to another person. And if you think about it, disobedience lies at the very heart of all sin. And that's why this is such an epical message that Paul has for us. It's always our bent to rebel. We want to do things our way. We don't want people telling us how we're supposed to do things. And that starts in us when we're children. And that's why Paul says children are to obey their parents. And then he gives us three reasons why we must obey our parents. First, and these appear to be in some order of priority, Paul writes, in the Lord. So the first reason has to do with the Lord. Again, this is not the first time we've seen this language. When we looked at wives, they were to obey their husbands as to the Lord. So the authority for this command to submit and obey, it comes from the Lord, meaning it's part of God's design. You see, God gave you your parents, and regardless of how you feel about them, he didn't make a mistake. They are your parents by his design, and he desires that you voluntarily obey them. And why is that? Well, if you think about it, If disobedience lies at the heart of all sin, then obedience lies at the very heart of God's design for man to follow him. And it is first learned in the home. That is where obedience starts out, in the home. That's one of the primary roles of a parent, to teach children to obey. Because once they learn in the home, they'll also obey their teachers and then they'll obey their bosses, and the laws of our nation, and ultimately, Almighty God. In other words, they will learn to obey every single authority that God places over them throughout their lives, because it's all part of God's design. And even Jesus demonstrated this for us. You recall whenever Joseph and Mary kind of lost track of him at the temple, and then they finally recovered him. Scripture says he went down to Nazareth and was submissive to them as he obeyed his earthly parents. And likewise, he obeyed his heavenly father, even suffering and dying on a cross to fulfill his father's will. But I also think it's important that we remember too what we learn back with husbands and wives. When we study them, we learn that this phrase, in the Lord, also helps define the appropriate context under which submission and obedience are to occur. For example, Paul is not 
demanding blind obedience to parents. And that's really important, especially if you happen to come from a tough situation. We alluded to those a little bit ago. Rather, he's instructing us to be obedient in all things that are in the Lord. That's the reason he gives here. So you mean there are actually cases in which a child can disobey a parent? Absolutely. For example, if parents direct a child to reject Jesus, they are not to be obeyed because that is not in the Lord. Or if parents direct a child to sin against the Lord in any way, they are not to be obeyed because that is not in the Lord. Now notice, this does not suggest that believing children do not have to obey unbelieving parents. Not at all. We saw the same thing when we saw wives that were married to unbelieving husbands. Wives still submit to unbelieving husbands, and children are still to obey unbelieving parents. Because as we learned, God may actually be using you to minister to your husband, or in this case, to minister to your parents. So children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Meaning, as long as it does not violate their relationship with Jesus in any way. The second reason Paul gives for this is right. In other words, children obey their parents because it's the right thing to do. It's in keeping with the totality of God's commands. It's in step with how God designed things. And as we've learned, when we live according to God's design, it puts us in step with His will, and He fills us with His Spirit, which is absolutely vital for us to progress in holiness. We simply can't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. So this is how God designed things to work in the realm of relationships between children and their parents. And this is not a suggestion. God takes this very seriously. To see what I mean, let's check out the list of things Paul compares disobeying parents to in some of his other letters. For example, in his letter to Rome, Paul describes what happens when people exchange God's truth for a lie. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So you see, disobedience to parents, it keeps some pretty nasty company when you look at it this way. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul describes the godlessness in the last days, and this should look really familiar to us here in 2024, where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's a sermon in and of itself right there. And Paul concludes, avoid such people. You see, disobeying parents is some of the most foul and rebellious things we could ever do. So the directive to obey parents, it's not a suggestion. It's what God expects 
from his beloved children. And then for the third reason, Paul quotes the fifth commandment as found in Deuteronomy 5. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So by pointing us back to the Ten Commandments, Paul reminds us that this is not a new teaching in any way, shape, or form. It's been around as long as the law itself. Children are to honor their father and their mother. But what makes this so interesting is what Paul points out in the parentheses, that this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that actually carries a promise with it, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So the first two reasons children are to obey are because of our relationship with God and because it's the right thing to do. But this third reason focuses on a specific benefit to us, that if we obey our parents, we can expect our lives to go well and to be lengthy. Huh. Did you know that? Don't you wish that you would have learned this when you were a little kid? If you want your life to go well, you want it to be long, well, then you should just obey your parents. Well, that's a pretty big promise right here. So we got to kind of understand what this means, because why would God just give a promise like this for this one commandment? And the problem is the reason isn't stated explicitly, which is why people seem to take the liberty to fill in the blank for themselves. And they often end up at several false extremes because they interpret it on a context. First, some disregard the promise altogether because it doesn't seem fair in their eyes. But again, these are God's words. It's his promise. So that's not a really good interpretation there. Some spin it into an argument for the prosperity gospel, that God actually exists to make you happy. And of course, as we know, we should not be buying into that prosperity gospel anywhere in any shape or form. When we hear that, we know that is a false prophecy right there. So that is not right either. Third, others see it as an unfulfilled promise because people who have obeyed their parents have actually died at a young age. But there are any number of other reasons in life why you may die prematurely, so that's not a good argument there either. So why is it that God made this particular promise associated with this one commandment? Well, if you think about it in the context of what Paul's teaching us here, it's actually fairly obvious. In fact, we already spoke to it just a few minutes ago. When we learn to be obedient in the home, it impacts the entirety of our lives. All the stuff you see in orange up there. Because if we don't learn to obey at home, we're going to frustrate our teachers. We won't reach our potential at school. We're going to become bad employees. We'll also break the law. We'll be a rebel without a cause, probably get arrested. We'll be disobedient to God with all those commandments that you see up there, and our sin will separate us from Him. Why? Because of disobedience. But when we learn to obey in the home, then when we go to school, our teachers can help us grow so that we can actually grow into our potential to be able to do the work that God has for us. And then when we actually do go to work, we know how to obey our bosses too so that we're productive and we're useful. And of course, we also then obey the laws of our nation and every single authority God places over us. But ultimately, it's about us choosing to then obey God, which is how we actually show God that we love Him. If you will love me, 
Obey my commands, as John writes. You see, obedience is not something we do begrudgingly. It's foundational to a flourishing relationship with Almighty God. It's all part of His design. So yeah, it just makes sense. Things should go better for you, and you should live a little longer when you live a life of obedience as opposed to a life of disobedience to Almighty God and all of His grand design. And so this is why Paul's charge is for all children to obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. May this teaching transform our lives, no matter what stage we find ourselves this morning. Empower us to choose to obey every authority you have placed over us, all as part of how we lovingly choose to obey you. We ask these things, Lord, and whatever else you see that we need to glorify and honor your mighty name. All we ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So for our response time today, we're going to spend a little time with our end state. We talked about this a little bit last week. This is what we know God desires for us here in the tri-state region and beyond. Why do we know that? Because it's in his scripture. This is what he desires for his children. And it's all about obedience. So let's spend a little time kind of reflecting on this thing. Maybe read through it, pray through it a little bit. But have in the back of your mind all that we just covered, especially with regard to this call of obedience. And make sure you hit that last line up there about prodigals coming home. Prodigals coming home.